0: Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to yet another playoff episode. Ooh, how I have loved these playoffs. And today, there's a topic that has been bouncing around in my head for a while. And there was a specific guest I had in mind to come on and discuss this from the wonderful, invaluable YouTube channel Half Court Hoops, the one and only Gibson Piper. How you doing? How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, A pleasure. It's always a pleasure. I think I was trying to figure out the last time you were here. But of course, since the pandemic years don't make sense anymore. (laughs) Um, I want to say it was in the bubble. I I have no idea. I can't figure it out. But what's what's on your mind? Uh, You know, we are recording this on Thursday, which means the first round is wrapping up a couple teams have already moved on to the second round. What's uh, what's the big thought in your head as you're watching these playoff series?
1: uh currently is are the 76ers really going to do this i think that's that's the the big one right now um just from from an interesting stamp you know standpoint of is this really happening you know again
0: it's uh it's one of those things where i want to talk about it but also it's it's like a cloud it could just vape philadelphia wins game six and all of this sort of building momentum that's like a gathering storm in the distance vanishes and goes away on the flip side. um, You know, if this continues, and if I mean, if they get to a game seven, it's very rare for that to happen. So at least it might be discussed a little bit in the future. But anyone listening from, you know, time porting into the future and listening back to this episode, which I hope people will do because we're going to talk about some really interesting stuff we'll be like, what? 76ers, Raptors? What's what's he talking about? Wasn't that just a six-game first-round series? It was 3-0. Now it's it's dangerous. It's 3-2. So, yeah, that's an interesting series.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then Pelicans. Obviously, I, I coach Trey on the Pelicans, so I'm very interested in them just from a fan standpoint and, and supporting him, but also just, like, you know, how the Suns are navigating without Booker um, and just seeing, you know, the the plan that they have without him and then how they are going to integrate him back. And is it going to elevate Bridges to a new level or is he going to kind of fade back into the role he had? You know, just kind of see how they
0: balance that in, in the future if they come out of this series, too. Is it possible for Bridges to go to an even higher level? I feel like he's already ascended to the highest possible level. Any basketball player. He's so good. I think he's the most underrated player in the league.
1: Yeah, he is he is fantastic. Uh there is just some like on offense in particular, right? There's there's a higher role that he could fulfill uh on a more consistent basis, right? You see flashes of it, you see like you know, the, the big game he just had, but just having it be more of like an every game consistent, you're now the third, maybe even second guy in the scouting report because his offensive skill has gone up.
0: It's funny because those two series have been incredibly exciting for me and they're still at this sort of precipice of, like, are we going to get a Game 7 and all that? And those weren't even the series that made me think to come up with this episode and talk to you about this. Um, The thing in my head that I wanted to bounce around with you is all of the changes that occur from the regular season to the postseason. So just as some high-level examples to throw them out, you watch Trey Young against the Miami Heat, and by the time you get to, like... I don't know. I didn't watch a lot of the early part of the series, but I'm tuning in game three, game four, game five. They're not even running spread, pick and roll and a ton of staggers up top for him. Like like the Heat just say, okay, we're going to bring this game plan against you. We're going to take away what you do. And this would not happen on just a Tuesday night during a road trip or something in the regular season. Um, Celtics taking what they do, dialing it up to 10 on Kevin Durant. You have a video on your channel today about that. Uh, Things like Golden State just saying, okay, it's playoff time. We're going to put Nikola Jokic in the Steph Draymond pick and roll vice over and over again. So, yeah, in the old days, the playoffs were always a little different than the regular season. But in today's game, in this modern pace and space game with all the scouting, all the coaches, all the data, all the tactics that you and I talk about, um, man, there's a lot that changes.
1: Yeah, it's it's basically if you took the game of basketball during the regular season and showed it to somebody and then showed them the playoffs, they would they would be like, this is a different sport. Like, it's just like I, I went back and, and watched uh, the latest Bucks Celtics game to kind of prep for that series in regular season. I was like, yeah, it'll be, you know, Tatum didn't play. It'll be a good kind of primer for me to, to see what happened. And you watch it and you're like, I'm learning nothing from this. Not one thing because they're just they're going half speed. It looks like it's just it's super it, it looks like somebody took up the uh, the 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 speed button and made it like 1.5 and then 2.0 as you slowly get in like game four and five because they're just the defensive intensity is so much better early on in the playoffs.
0: That was the first thing on my list. So I've, I've got a list that just keeps getting longer and longer. The first thing I wrote was duh intensity and I think we should be careful not to take away from the regular season because there's, right, there's this old adage of like college players play really hard and NBA players coast. The season's long. Guys do pace themselves and you get into those middle months and it can be tough. But especially compared to when I was growing up, I think regular season intensity and the fact that they play shorter rotations, uh, uh, shorter minutes and longer rotations now in the regular season. Those games have like they have good pop to them, but you cannot simulate getting into the playoffs, and what's on what's on the line for the players, the intensity of the crowds, the increased physicality, because, you know, if you haven't played at a high level, I haven't played at a very high level, but even just trying to get up to a higher level. I mean, you, you, you coach high school, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the difference in a possession between moving 60% speed into a screen or coming off a pick as a shooter at 60% and just going as hard as you can, right? Like, like this is the possession. And then doing that on the majority of possessions in the playoffs compared to the regular season, that changes a lot right there.
1: Yeah, it changes everything. It, cha- it changes even just the footwork of what you have to do, right? Because when you come off, if you come off any pick, right? half speed, 60%, you can kind of balance yourself normally. Cause that's a, a pretty gradual kind of thing to go from, you know, zero to sixty percent or even just off that screen. If you're flying off of it, you have to adjust everything. You have to adjust your feet, you have to adjust your hips, you have to adjust your your shooting motion, where your eyes are going, where you're reading the defense, how fast are they coming off of it? Are you pump faking? The decision making process is like a nightmare when you go actually a hundred percent right which is it's pretty rare to go like 90s kind of like the playoff intensity because you don't you don't ever really see a guy go 100% unless you're Duncan Robinson but <laughs> everything changes just going from that little tweak it's it's crazy
0: yeah and then you add in the downstream ramifications of that which you're talking about technique i mean just fatigue just just i'm running around on defense i'm I'm working harder on defense there might be more physicality as i move and then i'm getting into that shot off the catch and it's like The first guy that came into my mind was Joe Harris, where Joe Harris, clearly one of the best shooters in the world in the regular season. And the question is, if you put him in a playoff environment like we saw last season, and he's going to get picked on, moved around, bounced around, he's going to play this role at a higher intensity, how much does he lose? I'm not saying every guy loses you know, accuracy off their shooting percentages. But this is the stuff that happens, Gibson, right? Like your your body and mind start to get fatigued in a different way. And now all of a sudden, not everybody who was a 38% three-point shooter on their catch and shoots in the regular season is going to be able to make 38% in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, exactly. You see anytime Harris was missing a lot of threes in last year's playoffs, and a lot of them were, kind of, were open, right? Like teams have to load up on, on KD and obviously Harden last year. And Kyrie but they're like why is Harris just missing these threes and it's because yeah he has to do seven other things that he didn't have to do on a Monday night in Charlotte in February right he's he's just catching and shooting no ramifications no playoff impact he has to, have to go and really think about defense if he gets beat on a switch and may call a timeout and address it and film the next day like it's not there's no real like punishment if you miss a rotation in a regular season game necessarily, you know, quote unquote. But in the playoffs, if you miss a rotation with two minutes left and you're down three, now you go down five or go down seven. And that's that could be game over. Like, it's just, they're just too good in the playoffs. So everything is amplified from that level, but also the intensity of you now have to focus every possession and with the amount of and i'm sure we'll get into this the amount of switching that's going on you can't just look at the scouting report and say okay this is my guy right like you can't just be like i i'm guarding patty mills and I'll focus on just Patty Mills. Don't let him shoot. Well, if you're switching, you now have to focus on four to five different guys on the court, on the fly, in real time, while going full speed. It just, it just, everything makes it so much more complex.
0: Yeah. And, and you'll hear KYP around the league, know your personnel. And so you go into a regular season game and it's the really big things that jump out. Like you got to know you don't have to close out hard to a non-shooter. And you also know you shouldn't leave Steph Curry or something like that. But in the playoffs... You have to know everyone on the floor. It's all magnified. And it's not just your guy, as you said. It's this team scheme that may be new, that you may be implementing. This increases what we'd call your cognitive load, all this psychological stress. And then, I mean, think about like 27 in a row from the Houston Rockets. Now, I have defended that over the years in saying they actually had two that they made that didn't count. So, you know, technically people are still, human beings are still making shots in that streak But I don't think a streak like that happens if you're not at the end of a long series and if you're not guarding Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, and that offense. It's tailor-made to suppress your shooting percentages in a way that expose yourself to a huge dry spell. Yeah, and that game wasn't the first round either, right? So they played a
1: switching defense all season long where you switch one through five, basically, mentally physically taxing just on your body you know you're banging around bigger guys you're you're downsizing so you're playing bigger already and it's just it just adds up right it's just eventually it catches up with you and you just and then and then of course once you miss 10 in a row now the whole team's like ah oh, we got to get one like oh, we got to we aren't making any we got to make one just make one and then all of a
0: sudden you miss 20 in a row you're like oh my and it just keeps piling on and piling on so we've landed on this sort of what i wrote down as psychological issue of open shots which is everything we're talking about holds. And then on top of it, some guys are going to be put under a magnifying glass in a way that they can't be in the regular season where the coach says, oh, Al Horford, you're going to take 16 open threes and see how comfortable you are at that. Like you may be a 37% shooter on your two or three open threes that you like per game, but we're literally just not going to guard you and pick and pop because that's the way our defense works. And Al Horford's not even a great example of this, but... The difference between that kind of game planning and what that does to your shooting percentages in the playoffs, um, I think that psychological element is fast. It's almost like the psychological element of hack-a-shacking a guy, except he's naked in the corner over and over again or something.
1: It's really interesting because I, I like to think of like Harden as this example in a weird way. Because if, if James Harden is spotted up, and he's left open, which teams are doing more and more because of this. Because when he catches the ball, he actually doesn't like to just catch and shoot it, even though he's wide open and he's one of the best shooters in NBA history. He will literally wait for, like, like the other game against Toronto, he waited for Siakam to close out. fake, took a dribble and stepped back three and made it. And I'm just like, I just remember looking a couple years ago. I'm like, Harden just doesn't want to catch and shoot anymore because he's used to taking contested threes. Like he's more comfortable shooting a contested three than a regular three. And I think a lot of guys do practice contested shots. You know, the shot making in the NBA is at a high level. So if you're contested, it might not even matter. And so guys, when they're open, especially if they're already, you know, a borderline okay shooter in the regular season, um, like Gary Payton, the second was a, a 35% or 37% from corner threes and 35 overall, I think, you know, an average shooter, right? Like, okay, but you leave him open in the playoffs. Well, he was comfortable taking open shots, but like Bruce Brown wanted no part of that, even though he's probably the same, I would put them in the same category of shooter, like can make an open shot, but not considered, you know, above average shooter, somebody that you worry about spacing the floor. So it just is interesting to see. And that's a big part of like what Draymond always talks about. Not everybody's built for the playoffs you know, and that's a a big part of it is the mental aspect of I'm open and I'm going to shoot this still.
0: It's really funny that you mentioned GP2 because um, my wife is a big GP2 fan. And I was joking with her that he shoots all his shots in slow motion. And so I wonder if that comfort right like his when he gets an open three in the corner, it's like three seconds before the release. Most players are half a second, two thirds of a second. And I wonder if that's like, Helped him just continue to shoot the same shots in the in the playoffs in some weird way. (laughs) Right. Like he's he's catching not even he's
1: he's already thinking regularly. Right. So there's no overthinking. Right.
0: He's like, I might pass. I might I might uh, drive off this catch. Oh, no one's around. Oh, maybe I'll think about something else. Oh, there's my dad. Oh, now I'm going (laughs) to shoot. Another one related to all this that I wrote down, which is obvious, is minutes go up for key stars. Right. So in the regular season, in the old days, w- way, way back before the interwebs, uh, stars in the regular season would play like 40, 42 minutes a game. I mean, geez, before the merger with the ABA, they were in the mid-40s. And now those numbers are pretty typically in the low 30s. Some guys in the league are 35, 36 minutes a game. Of course, LeBron James, whoever his coach is, has to play him like 30, 38 minutes a game. But whatever your number is, it's always getting bumped up in the postseason Your stints are going to be a little bit longer. That's going to contribute to fatigue. And as a related thing, I mean, I think this is just the low-hanging fruit. Your lineups get tighter. So seven-man rotation, eight-man rotation, things like that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Do you have anything? We've talked about this issue for quite a bit now. Do you have anything that you wrote down that jumps out to you about what, what is changing in the game these days between the regular season and the playoffs? Yeah,
1: I I wrote down. Uh, everybody gets hit more, so it kind of goes along with your physicality. Like if you just watch, like we we specifically like, the KD versus the Celtics stands out, right? Like he, I had in uh, in my breakdown, I have I went through some of the interview clips after the game to see if they how much they actually talked about the strategy you know because you know coaches are notoriously like hush hush about we don't talk about anything and so in the clips like kd was even saying like yeah i'm coming off this action and al horford's just walking over and hitting me as i'm coming like it was just hilarious because it was like they would set a their favorite cross screen set for kd and al horford would just walk run away from drummond and just elbow him like just straight up elbow him and just like yep i'm here and and It happened on pin downs. It happened on any action that he was involved in. They would just hit him. And so uh, it just everything becomes like, not only are you being more physical yourself defensively and, you know, from, from every other aspect we touched on, but every time you're trying to do anything important, there's always somebody just reminding you like we're here, hitting, hitting just constant reminders. It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah. And I think that for me lands in this category of like tailoring, game plans towards star players in a way that wouldn't happen. Um, We may actually talk about this on the next episode of the show, but we have seen a number of superstar offensive players sort of get taken away in this round, right? I I mentioned Trey in Miami. Um, You just aren't going to see that kind of scheme specification where a coaching staff can say, and and the Heat obviously have the personnel to do it. They They can spend a week in the film room, and go, okay, how can we kind of take away the pet actions that this team likes? How can we marginally shrink the advantages they have? And I think that's sometimes too subtle to jump off the screen, but when you start digging back into the film, you realize, uh, I wrote down in big capital letters, more gapping, meaning the, the players in the driving lanes against certain opponents, against certain stars and coverages are deliberately and conscientiously taking a step or two closer to shrink the driving lanes and saying, hey, Trey, you got to pass it around Jimmy Butler now. That's th- that's what this is going to look like when you run this spread, pick and roll. Um, and there's more layers to that with what's going on in Miami. But I just this whole category of customizing game plans toward players and constantly shrinking on the margins is fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I wrote down the help defense has been insane. Because like, yep. if yep. you look his, like his, and watch any film from 2000 until now, most of what the NBA has been is like deny force baseline, no middle, you know, in general. And you don't really see like a guy standing at the nail just waiting, not even looking at his guy, just waiting there like you're just not going to drive this way. And, and what they do is they force him there. Right. It's more like a, like the Virginia pack line defense is notorious for allowing middle. And then helping in the gaps, right? They're just that that shuts shuts down the driving lanes. And there's been a like I'd probably say the last five years, it's kind of ramped up more and more. But then this playoffs, it's like everybody's in the gaps helping and, and even over helping to an extent, which is like people make a big uh, uh, a big deal about the three point shooting, right? And and teams are taking more threes than ever or shooting, but yeah, but teams are also giving them up more than ever. You know, you look at the best teams in the NBA defending the Heat, the Bucks, even the Suns to an extent. Like they're they're going to give up an open three above the break, but not in the corner. It's just really interesting to see how much helping and even over helping is taking place.
0: Right, and and if you think about something like the Hawks running all these uh, spread pick and rolls for Trey, they run a lot of staggers for Trey. The downstream effect of that is usually something like a lob to a big, a Trey floater or they can move the ball around against the defense in rotation and get like an open, comfortable corner three. And the trade-off, when you take away that action upstream, it seems that a lot of defenses are saying, you're a superstar, you got to give it up early to a guy who has to take an early clock above the break three. That's not the same thing as him sitting there and waiting for like, oh, they're in rotation, I'm going to get one of my money shots right now. That is a completely different thing than what we're seeing in the regular season.
1: Yeah, the regular season, you'll just see Trey use whatever ball screen he wants whenever he wants in any location he feels like. And even if they do get like the typical drag or, or spread pick and roll, it's it's going to be switched, right? So even if even if you do get like the exact play that you want, they're just going to go, "Okay, cool, we'll just switch this and we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out later." Like it's it's no big deal, which is another layer of like I don't think teams have done a good job preparing for those switches, which we could probably get into later. But um, yeah, like normally, you know, you see, you see a drive, even if the team's over helping, you see a a skip pass and a one more, and the guy's in rhythm catching and shooting. And it's just, it's just a comfortable shot. Now it's like, yeah, you may be able to get the switch. You may be able to drive, but we're not going to, we're not going to worry about him shooting it. We're going to let him shoot. We're not letting you shoot. And it (laughs) takes Trey mentally out of the game, even though he's a great passer. That's not his first,
0: option that's not his 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 desired action to have on the court right right yeah so I almost have a little subcategory here in my notes called the Andre Roberson rules where now it's happening to shooters who are actual shooters but the extreme example of this is of course you know the way teams used to play Roberson um, Golden State in the series in 2016 where Draymond's just like I'm gonna roam off so you have some spectrum that seems to be developing where when you get into the playoffs, I'm going to sag off this guy more and make him be the one. So there's a whole chain of events, right? He's got to be the one who beats me with the shot, but also the superstar has to make a different read or an earlier pass. And in the case of the Heat, they're so long in the passing lanes. You know, in the bubble, the sort of I always thought the feature of that zone was that they had guys kind of up higher than you would see in an NBA zone because they use that length to kind of take away those side-to-side passes. And if you're not comfortable with that, I mean, the first two games in Boston, Durant had a ton of those one pass away options where you're helping or stunting off of a guy who's like, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet away from Durant. And stars are just not always accustomed to making those passes. So there's this entire family, right?
1: Yeah, KD talked about that in in his a couple of his pressers where he would say like, yeah, they're just they're sending two guys at me. They're they're helping and in game three he was like, yeah, I, I tried to make the right play. Like everybody made a big deal about you know Bruce Brown getting more shots than him and everything. He's like, yeah, I, I tried to make the right play. Like I just I, I don't I don't know what you want me to do. He's like, I tried to score in games one and two. That didn't work. <laughs> He's like, so I tried to make the right play and get the teammates involved. He's like, that doesn't work.
0: He's like, I just got to figure it out. <laughs> I, I actually like. It's funny we landed on his game three because I thought his game three was actually a pretty solid game. Um, His passing created a lot of open shots and the Nets offensive rating the Nets' offensive rating in the series is actually pretty good. But I think from his perspective, you know, tying into everything we're saying, he realized somewhat to his credit that him forcing 25 or 30 jumpers against that coverage against those defenders and a second and third body isn't just, it's just not going gr- to get you great offense. It's just not the answer. And in game three, he passed a ton. Um, he keeps continue to make some good passes in game four. But of course, you know, when you, when you start losing, even if they're close games, the, the criticism reigns very, very loudly. Yeah. And I,
1: I always look at it. Like if you were in Kevin Durant's shoes and you're bringing the ball up the court and you're being pressured as much as you possibly can to force you inside the three point line, and then when you do drive, there's two or three people waiting for you on the drive. And you have an option to, A, shoot it, which you are a good contested shooter. Uh, B, pass it to Bruce Brown or Goran Dragic or Nick Claxton, because they're not leaving Kyrie. Or C, just give it up and get off the ball and and hope you do something else next possession. Like, what are your options? What's a good option there? Are you, You're Kevin Durant. You want to sit there and pass to Bruce Brown all game? Like, no, you, you don't. I guarantee you don't. Like, that's, that's not like that's not what you want to do you look at those guys and you're like I wouldn't want to pass to most of them if it's not Kyrie I wouldn't feel comfortable giving getting off the ball and, and trying to create them looks just because right, I don't right. think that they're at that level to compete at, at in the playoffs personally
0: yeah and it, it'll be interesting the the sort of recent history of this I feel like is stuff happens in the playoffs and then it trickles into the regular season as it becomes more mainstream and so now, I feel like the coaches this season and this recent development are saying, hey, how can we put you in a slightly uncomfortable position where you have to pick your poison? And we, throw, we make that choice so difficult because of what you just said. If you haven't played, and, and I thought the Nets in some sense got a little too much criticism on this front. If you haven't played like that all year, the Warriors Steph can give it up chase the ball, follow, have actions right around the baseline. He's got Pat Draymond, Igwood, all those guys are looking for it. If you haven't played that way and you're saying, okay, Bruce Brown, I'm going to give you the ball with 17 on the shot clock and I know I'm going to be able to go back and get a good shot in seven seconds or something. It's really uncomfortable. And that's part of, in a sense, the the sort of defensive brilliance that I think we're seeing against these stars. Yeah, and the Nets offense didn't make it hard on the
1: Celtics, right? Like they're the most They're the best isolation team in the NBA, but also they use it the most, which means if you are not, if you're defaulting to isolation, that means you can be stopped more than like a heat offense where it's more like, you know, move it around, handoffs, rollers, you know, three or four people touch every possession and uh, in the Warriors, similar vein, Suns even do an extent. Once they run the ball screen, they get you in rotation. Um, But if you are just going to like come up the court and throw it to the elbow every time for Kevin Durant like you can game plan a lot easier for that than you can when Steph Curry's running circles around you and random screens are coming so uh credit to the Warriors and you know teams like that whereas you see like the Nets and Hawks you know to you know and and the perfect blend of these right so Nets and Hawks are more like around one player two players and ISO and and, and ball screens and and those kind of that's the way they create scoring opportunities Warriors Heat uh, are more you know ball movement get everybody involved put you you know attack the 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 weakness with our motion right with our offense whereas you see the Bucks are like the perfect middle ground right where they can have Drew and Giannis and if Middleton was playing him in isolation and attack mismatches one on one use Giannis physical dominance but they're also all willing to get off the ball and get into a second side or a third side action to still keep that pressure on the defense
0: yeah and and you mentioned um, switching and things like that. Uh, again, another category here for me that we've seen emerge in the last decade is the switch hunting, right? That wasn't something that was super common even in the just the 2000s. That sort of error that preceded this once they opened up the freedom of movement rules in 2005. So in this last seven, eight, nine playoffs, we see if you're a weak spot on the floor, we're going to bring you up. I think of the Celtics defense with this, where they've had a small that they could target for the last couple post seasons, whether it's Kemba Walker, Kyrie Irving before that, Isaiah Thomas before that, and in the playoffs, if you go after those guys, and sometimes bigs are, are put in these situations, you know, um, we mentioned Steph and Draymond's pick and roll. Just we're going to bring Jokic up every time and we're going to make it real fun for you because we're going to start that screen 40 feet away. So you, you have to decide how you want to handle Steph Curry coming downhill. So there's a lot of different ways to do this. Celtics defense now, of course, this year doesn't have that small guy like Marcus Smart is the guy. So I don't, I don't know how you attack them. It's a pretty, they're looking like they could possibly be a historically great defense, depending on what happens in the next few rounds. But um, yeah, the the mismatch hunting, hunting and the switch hunting to me falls in this category where you just wouldn't see that quite as much in the regular season.
1: Yeah, and, and it gets amplified in the playoffs because because the the schemes are so good you have to find the weakest spot almost every time right or at least involve it every single time and so i was talking about this i was doing uh, a couple of the the live streams on on the new playback app where i was talking last night against cousins where people make a big deal about like demarcus cousins he's he's big he's scoring points scored i think he scored 20 something last night his playoff career high which is insane i would have never guessed that like twenty one was his playoff career high. I think it was nineteen was his career high. Um, but they were like, yeah, Marcus Cousins. He's he's big. He's 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 a he's a force down there. He's scoring what he wants. What are the Warriors gonna do? And it's like, the Warriors are gonna score three points on the other end. Like, are we not watching the same game? Like, he can't defend. Yeah. I mean, he he kept him afloat and he kept him alive. But like, the 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 mismatch like that doesn't get uh, always brought up because what the Warriors would do is they would involve him in just like a basic pin down. And then it hit the roller because he has to play at, at, at the level and, and so high up. Then the roller would hit somebody else and then they'd end up in the, the third or fourth cut. And so DeMarcus Cousins isn't getting scored on directly, but he was the reason that the advantage was created that led all the dominoes to the layup, right? So the, the mismatch and the, and the hunting can be more than just, I'm going to involve you in a ball screen one-on-one, let's go, right? It, it can be, I'm going to bring, we're going to bring Jokic up, and then when he switches her hedges, Steph's going to get off it, right? Whether it's a, a kick to the wing, a hit the roller, we're just going to pull him out. So now they have zero rim protection, right? Because Jokic is a pretty good positional defender. I like his defense at the rim. I think he's got great hands. Like he's, he he bothers people. But if you pull out Gordon and Jokic, who's, you know, Gordon, Gordon's guarding Steph and, and Jokic is guarding Draymond and they go that ball screen. Now you don't even have to attack it one-on-one. You've just pulled their two biggest rim protection, assets off the three-point line right they're, they're out of the play almost so now you're playing even three on three with those other guys and you got Poole and clay going downhill wiggins attacking mismatches it's not just a direct ball screen that they can hunt it's just even pulling those guys out stretches the defense and takes any way at rim protection away
0: i'm so glad you mentioned the sort of multi-layers to that element because i feel like harden and to some degree lebron made this really popular in the mainstream, realizing like, oh, they're in these playoff series and they're just literally pointing at the corner and saying like, go get me the weakest, (laughs) smallest guy so I can isolate against him. But this is the category, right? It's going after mismatches or switches in ball screens and then the defense has to react to that in some way. Sometimes you see defenses trap. They just all out blitz the man with the ball. They send two guys to the dribbler. Then you get stuff like Draymond short roll killing you. And if you're not paying attention, you don't realize that's like that's because they brought that DeMarcus Cousins or whoever this weak defensive big up is. And their best answer is, we're going to play four on three behind the play. <laughs> that's their best answer. So, okay. Um, what else have you had written down here? We've, we're plowing through a lot of my Big, juicy topics. What else do you think changes from regular season to postseason these days? Um, one quick note, too. Uh, the Warriors' death lineup is not as deathy as it was before
1: because uh, Jordan Poole on defense hasn't been great and hasn't really been talked about because their offense has been nuclear. But him getting his fifth foul last night <clears throat> and having to put Gary Payton in the game uh, really kind of changed that game a little bit from a defensive standpoint. Like If you look at their numbers uh, when like they had Iggy and all them, the actual death lineup, their numbers this year, their defense is not good in the death lineup so far in the playoffs. So just something to keep in mind going forward. Poole hasn't been great defensively for their death lineup, and that could come into the mismatch hunting. Because I don't think you can have Steph and Poole on the same, at the same time all the time. Because they're both kind of the weaker spots of that defense and not a lot of length behind them with that. So just something that I've been thinking about as I've watched that series play along. Um, but so the next one I have is after timeouts, just don't go as planned anymore. <laughs> so in the regular season, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see a ton of after timeouts and, and special plays that will lead to like slips and layups and three point shots and, and hammers and, and all the creative stuff that I love to break down as a coach. And you watch them now and when they set up the play, the other team is just calling out what they're going to do. Right. So you have to come up with new after timeout plays in the playoffs, very specific for those series. And sometimes they they work, but I would say overwhelmingly, and I haven't done any numbers on this, but I would say 70% of the time the defense will take away the action you're trying to create just by switching it or knowing a similar play that they've already seen. Um, It's just been really interesting to see do coaches try to run new plays that they maybe try to put in the day before or even drop in the moment? Or are they running their typical after-timeout plays, you know, for, for scores? So uh, that's been one of my favorite kind of, like, battles to watch, especially after timeouts and stoppages.
0: There, there's another thing that loops back to our first point, which is about intensity. And I've I've seen... AT, you come out of the timeout in the regular season, especially if you're in that X's and O's mindset, you get your notepad ready, you're like, all right, here comes a nice special after a timeout. What are they going to run? And teams are going to run these, and something that's jumped out to me in the postseason is the first pass gets mucked up. Ball pressure on the ball changes the entire after timeout. Or the first pass is, you just think it's like a vanilla pass. And, oh, oops, the defense was in denial, and now you can't make that pass. And now the whole play blows up. Yeah, it's it,
1: and that's a big part of of that that focus and, and physicality we've been talking about. But uh but yeah, it's just you like you you watch it. You're like, all right, it's there's 35 seconds left. They got a chance to go two for one. Let's see what they do. And they're like, oh, they wound it down to 19, not intentionally, just because they literally couldn't find an option besides, hey, let's get the ball to MB now, right? Like that's that's what and that's what it defaults to because, like these teams are just so well prepared. Like these coaches know every single play they know every single call they know what happens on those calls and what's really interesting I think the broadcast has done a good job of cutting to coaches and players more like in the stoppages because you can see like the the Golden State will Draymond will call out a play and then you can see in the background their bench you know signaling their own play call signal so they tell Draymond what the actual play is coming and then Draymond signals to everybody else what play is coming and it's just like cool you have this after timeout that, that's worked 10 times in the regular season not anymore like like yep. they're gonna switch yep. it and you're done
0: yeah no it's it's uh when you get into the very nerdy x's and o's stuff um it's it's super fun to watch all these counters so okay i've got uh i've got one more kind of big low-hanging fruit thing and then i've got my my takeaways which is really interesting uh, before we do that any other any other changes that you have written down uh, no, that w- those are the main ones. Okay, yeah. So my other low-hanging fruit one that we haven't mentioned is transition, which I feel like if, in general, you are a transition team, and I think this has been true for a decent number of years going back even into the 2000s. You like to get out and run. That's kind of how you shift your lineup, your rebounding, whatever it may be. I feel like you get to the playoffs. If a, if a team decides we are not getting your transition, they're just going to really focus on keeping a guy or two back, uh maybe even off rebounding action making sure you don't get cross matched right so that cross match can be really fascinating in the playoffs if you say okay we're going to have uh you know a center guard tony allen or something well the cross match is when they come back on the other end then tony allen and the center are matched up so the other the other guys that you had are crossed anyway transition is something to me that i i feel like if you make a deliberate effort to take it away, that you that you can limit a team that's really successful at getting out and running. And this is something that's been a concern of mine for a while with the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah, that
1: for me too, for the Grizzlies, because they live off of offensive rebounding transition during the regular season. And so you always are... I, I'm more curious than I was worried, I think, to start the playoffs. Now I'm a little more worried because it's like they're just not... In a regular season game, you'll see them get the ball off a of make even and take two or three dribbles and throw a lob to Zaire Williams on the backside or Ja running down or you know a deep post seal for Steven Adams or Jaron Jackson Jr. And now I'm watching and I'm like, they're not even trying to run. Like at times Jaw would just like get the ball and walk it up with like nine minutes in the third quarter left. And you're like, All right, is this the same same team? And I think it kind of plays into the physicality aspect of it too, right? I don't know how viable it is to thrive in transition, thrive in rebound, offensive rebounding, and defend at a super high level, all like for forty-eight minutes every game. Like it just has to be physically, like insane to do that. Uh, now, the one example that kind of comes in my head with transition is the Bubble Lakers. Right, they
0: they had a lot of success in transition because they turned people over more. Right, right, right. So yeah. So it's a, it's a feature. It's a feature of something earlier in the possession. Then I think it's consistent, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think if you can turn teams over, then your transition will work better.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing with the Grizzlies is again, it goes back to one of our other points. Adams is being played off the court defensively because of that sort of hunting that weakness, put him in high ball screen. And so then you lose your main offensive rebounding guy. So that thing goes away. Um, Okay. So all of this leads me to some pretty fun. And this is, I've been bouncing this around in my brain for the last couple of weeks. So this is still early stage theory, but I'll read the takeaways and you interject or react whenever, whenever you um, feel, feel the need to, especially it can give me a break from talking. Uh, okay, <laughs> But so this is, this is my takeaway from everything we just said. First, I think if you are a drop big man, I'll use that term just, you know, Steve the Steven Adams, Jokic's of the world, the guys who you don't want switching 40 feet away and all that. If you are a drop big man who can't guard super well in space, you are probably going to be attacked in some way and therefore you need the right personnel around you to protect against that.
1: Yeah, the Utah Jazz guards can't defend anybody.
0: Yeah, I mean we we could do um I'm actually <laughs> working on a video on that, so I'm I'm not gonna do a whole hour on on the Utah defense, but one of the big thoughts I've had about Gobert, and I actually now want to get your thoughts on it while you're here, he is in such a strange defensive environment for an NBA playoff team. Um, he's literally starting games with Bogdanovich, who is a fairly weak defender, and then three dudes under six foot four. I guess Royce O'Neal is technically about six four. Uh, and those dudes are not playing very good defense either on the perimeter. And in the early games of the series, their rotation was a mess. So you can get in all the X's and O's you want, but it's like this is not a normal playoff defensive team that you would see out there. And it seems to create this sort of illusion that, well, because Rudy also applies here and that you could space him out, play five out. Um, if you stretch him or get him in a switch and pick and roll, he's not going to be the greatest defender in the world. It creates this illusion that like he's causing the problem, um, but he would never. There's no defense that would look like this in any competitive playoff environment if he weren't there in the regular season to to help them make the playoffs. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating to
1: watch, like how bad they are just guarding the ball. Basic, just basic guarding the ball. Right, Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you think like Donovan Mitchell is such an explosive athlete and so shifty on offense. Like why doesn't he just do those same moves on defense <laughs> just for a little bit? Like somebody has to be the best of perimeter defender. Right. And right now there's a, there's a case you can make for Conley being the best, which is not good to be clear. Like that's not a a compliment to Conley. That's a, probably more of a, of a detracting statement towards Mitchell and O'Neal. But like sometimes the Mavericks like they would just come down and be like "Now nah, we don't want a ball screen with Gobert's man like we'll just go guard to guard and just drive by you and then Gobert has to help and then we won't help Gobert when he helps though like that just doesn't make any logical sense like Gobert will help off the corner and everybody's like why is Gobert helping off of a shooter and it's like well somebody's got to protect the rim that's what he's really good at right my question is why isn't anybody helping Gobert when he helps like that doesn't make any sense you'll see like like They'll, they'll put a, uh, the best shooter, or uh, Kleba, in the corner, and another shooter out there. And yep. then Bogdanovich will just stand there and look at them both. And then at the end,
0: close out. So it looks like he did something, but it's just an open corner three. It doesn't even make any sense. This is a great teaser for the video. Um, Good. Because, <laughs> because because what most teams will do is, if the guy helps off the corner, someone else can X out or rotate. Or The Jazz are just like, Rudy, you're on your own. <laughs> You you have to go protect the rim after this crazy breakdown at the point of attack, but then also we would like your 7-2 behind to turn around and close out to the corner. Um, let's, let's move off Utah before I spontaneously combust. Okay, so I would say related to this sort of X's and O's thing is another subtle thing, which is you also, you mentioned the Warriors offense and um, the Heat offense and things like that sometimes you in the playoffs really need guys that can chase off the ball that um, can handle all that movement. It's kind of like the opposite of the Nets' stagnation. Um, And if you don't have that and awareness, I don't know if we've seen a salient example in these playoffs. But even going back to the bubble, I thought the Nuggets come back against the Clippers. The Clippers had all these great switchable defenders, but they're not great sort of dynamic team behind the play aware, you know, move off screen defenders. That was kind of the other side of this coin to me when we think about ball screen on one hand. But on the other hand, uh, the Fred Van Vliet's of the world kind of harassing you and chasing you off the ball. They can also if you don't have those, they can also be exploited in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 pretty much how
1: you have to play the warriors and like the heat where it's like, if you don't have guys who are willing to not only chase, but fight like through some of those screens and, and really make it difficult and even jam up that action just by chasing and then hitting like you have no shot guarding stuff. Like, like the nuggets did a great job against Steph Curry last game. Like they did a really good job off the ball and he's still got like four open threes, like wide open threes. Cause you just, you have one, one little breakdown and you're screwed.
0: Yep. So that's a great segue into my next big takeaway, which is around shooting. And I think if you have a lack of shooting now, of course, that can be exploited. But it goes into the subtleties we talked about at the top, which is you actually need shooters that, if necessary, can shoot kind of their shots at volume or slightly different shots at volume. Because there's going to be defensive schemes where you say, um, Aaron Gordon, you can have 10 open threes. Feast your heart out. Like I understand that it says you're a 32 or 33 percent shooter, but I don't think you're going to enjoy taking eight consecutive threes in the third quarter of this key playoff game. Yeah, the Warriors went to a box and one, and they're like, everybody else can shoot.
1: We're just going to stop Jokic. Everybody else can shoot. We don't care. Like you may make one, but you you won't make them all,
0: and help him get back in the game because the Nuggets didn't make them. By by the way, Jokic getting eliminated last night. Um, I I said during the year I felt kind of robbed that we wouldn't get to see him. Play at these higher and higher tactical levels, but I feel like it was a it was I, I got my appetite a bit um, sort of uh, taken care of in a sense because he at least got to spar with the Warriors and it's just like dude that dude is amazing that 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 guy's they're like zoning and boxing and wanting him and he comes in at the end of the game and he's like okay let's see spinning floater in the lane one leg it okay behind the back pass over the head I'm like I. Yeah, that, that guy's incredible. Um, okay, last couple of categories for me, these big takeaways. One I've talked about for many, many years, and I think it applies now, but in a way that is more holistic. It's beyond scoring, and that is the resiliency of the star player, the, the counters that the star player can go to. And in the old days, this was like, you know, you take away my left hand, I go to the right. I I now think it's all right if you're going to double if you're going to shade a defender over here I'm going to go to the post if you're going to double me in the post I'm going to come off a ball screen if you're going to trap me in the pick and roll I'm going to I'm going to make the pat oh, oh if you're going to cheat over in the pick and roll I'm going to hit the corner right it's the sort of holistic resiliency of all these counters that a star player has because when you get into this environment in the playoffs there are now a lot of coaches a lot of defenses that as we've talked about for the last 45 minutes or whatever, are going to chip away at your strengths, your sweet spots, and your comfort zones. Yeah, it goes into the fact of like the defense is
1: going to take away what you do best, right? So they're going to switch up coverages. They're going to switch up angles. They're going to basically throw different looks at you. So it's on the flip side, you get to throw different looks at them, right? That's we talked about KD isolating at the elbow in the mid post. All games. Like he didn't do anything to force Celtics defense hand really. I mean, you run a couple of ball screens, but it was just basically throw it to the elbow, hope he does something, right? And so if if he would if he were to go into the low post, catch it at the nail, run a ball screen, be the off-ball screener in actions, throwing all those different looks at the defense is kind of the counterpunch to them throwing all the different looks at you at the same
0: time. So related to that, and my final point, Gibson, I think we're seeing now more sort of team and coaching versatility and flexibility in the playoffs. Maybe a couple of years ago, it felt like, oh, there's the Warriors, they can go to this, you know, they can go with Bogut and the traditional bigs, and then they can go to the death lineup. And now it feels like, wow, you get into the, the when we're only in the first round, and there's already a handful of teams that are kind of more like amoebas out there, right? Like the personnel and the way they've played all year sets them up to do stuff like, okay, we're going to slide over in the driving lanes more. Um, We are going to switch these ball screens, but not this. Like one of the things that's fascinating about that Raptors-Phillies series, I'm catching up watching the series in reverse. I don't recommend that. Um, It's just, (laughs) it's easier to go chronologically with the coaching staff, but you're, you're watching these games and you're like, okay, so... What is Doc Rivers, what's his answer going to be to all their switching? Because all of their defenders are the same. Like, there's no Embiid mismatch from one defense. He goes from Precious Achua to uh, Pascal Siakam to OG Ananobi. They still double off his off his dribble. If he's on a certain side of the court, he struggles to pass out of the double team. Like, what James Harden, every single defender you put in front of James Harden is almost the same. And he can't get by any of them, so what this is kind of i I said I don't want to get too stuck on the Raptors series, but this the the versatility, the switching um I think it's a feature in the playoffs now more than ever, especially compared to, to the regular season. I meant the flexibility, not necessarily just the switching, but these coaches and the coaching staffs coming up with these different game plans from series to series,
1: yeah, it doesn't have to be for. A game or series at a time either i mean it helps right it helps to, to have that flexibility for the entire playoffs but even if it's just for a five minute stretch right like if if the small ball of the mavericks are killing you the jazz needed to have an answer for at least just five to six minutes just to hold the fort down to to go back to what the, how they actually want to play um now you see teams like the warriors who are very comfortable playing small and they'll play draymond the entire game if they have to but they also go back to, to Looney every now and then when the matchup you know sees fit. Um, you see the Celtics where they can play Horford and Rob Williams at the same time, Horford and Tice Tyson Rob Williams, and then they'll go to just Horford and just Rob Williams, and then they throw every guard who's all six. They're all six four. They're all long, right or above, and they got Tatum and Brown out there. Um, that their flexibility has been really impressive because. I, early in the season, I, you know, you watch teams like the Cavs playing bi- two bigs. You know, the Pelicans are now playing two bigs, uh, not extendedly, but they're starting them. They're they're playing them more than normal. And I'm like, is this gonna work? Like, aren't teams just gonna drive and kick and, and blow by you? And then you watch the Celtics, and you're like, oh, they have like three of the top seven isolation defenders in the NBA, and they're all Grant Williams, who's all, you know, like they're all six six and above, right? And you're like, how? What is happening? Like, when did this happen? How, like, how did we get here? Al Horford was Basically, nothing. And now he's one of the best ISO defenders in the NBA. What's going on? And so you just have to ask. I'm asking those questions. I'm like, all right. So, like, the Raptors are just switching everything. They're going to switch, even if it's a guard on Embiid, they'll just kick him out and then go trap anyways. So, they don't care if you throw it to him in the post. It's just fascinating to see, like, yeah, we're just going to do this and take all of your best options away. Good luck. Right. And if you don't have that flexibility, right, you're done. And that's what the Hawks didn't have. That's what the Jazz really don't have. I mean, Memphis and Minnesota, Memphis definitely has it. Minnesota doesn't really have, you know, they have Carlin the Towns, but they don't really have a secondary, like, we can go big, right? So that's an interesting one because they have a lot of skilled offensive players but they don't, and they have a lot of length, but they don't really have like a necessarily like a big. So, what's their flexibility? And it's just interesting to look at and go down the, the list of like, okay, do the Suns have a small ball flexibility? Like, how's that going to look if they face the Warriors? What's going to happen to Aiden? It's just a lot of questions that are like, this makes it really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think you alluded to sort of the unicorn flexibility of, uh, you know, bubble Anthony Davis, um, Giannis Antetokounmpo. You could see Bam even in a situation mm-hmm. where he plays next to a drop big and then when you need to, you just play Bam at the five. The Warriors have that as well. I It's still... Tricky for me because playoff data is such small sampled and this has really only been going on for a few seasons to dial in what this means in terms of like playoff impact. But I think these guys, especially defensively, that can give you this scheme versatility, uh, they're 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 not only fascinating, but seemingly really, really valuable. So. uh, All right. This was phenomenal, as as always. Um, Gibson, anything you want to plug right now? Where can people find your work? What do you have? That we can look forward to that's coming up. That now's now's the time to let everyone know. Yeah, I'm um, I'm on Twitter at
1: Half Court Hoops, uh, Instagram, uh, the Basketball Playbook because Half Court Hoops is taken. Uh, but Twitter, YouTube, Half Court Hoops. I do all the breakdowns on there. Twitter, I'm the most active. Um, I do Substack posts because YouTube blocks longer videos or, you know, copyrights longer videos. So I put the longer versions on there. Um, I got a cool breakdown on how to defend a superstar coming out in a couple weeks. Um, I'm probably going to do a Draymond Jokic IQ battle breakdown. because like, that was really interesting uh, to, to see that whole whole series play out. And then I'll have, you know, second round previews and X's and O's stuff. So popping up here soon. So.
0: Oh, exciting. I look forward to that. Um, if you want to directly support this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. We have additional content. We have our uh, playoff proprietary daily stats board updating so you can see who my box plus minus model thinks is the best player in the playoffs after the first round. He may or may not play in Miami. Um, We have a community and a ton more patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Thanks as always for listening all the way through hope you enjoyed this episode and that wherever you are listening, you're enjoying the playoffs. And of course, having a great day.